This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. So let's uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read these verses and then pray and ask for the Lord's help as we go through them together. This is God's Word. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful to be gathered now around your word. We're thankful for the blessing of singing your word together, congregationally, and hearing those voices proclaim these truths of reading your word and hearing it read from the Psalms and and hear from the Gospel of Luke, and now hearing it proclaimed. And Lord, here in just a few moments, getting to see it, getting to participate as we take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we pray that in all of this, Christ would be exalted, that he would be exalted in our hearts, that the Gospel would be made clear, that we would not just understand it, but love it, rejoice in it, and that that would overflow into all of our lives, all of those around us. Lord, help us to be a church that is a faithful witness by the power of the Spirit, through your word, a faithful witness to the beauty and love and mercy and power of Jesus Christ. We pray that your word would be clear to us this morning. And Lord, if we're unsettled about Jesus, if we're unsettled about where we stand, we pray that it would be settled today. We ask for your grace and help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uncertainty about Jesus is really natural when you view him from a distance or through the lens of popular opinion. If you think about Herod's view of Jesus this morning from this passage, I think it's a good example. Uh, Herod here is the son of Herod the Great, who was seeking to to kill Jesus when, uh, when he was a baby. Herod Antipas became ruler of a third of his father's kingdom. And you see that he's listed here as a tetrarch, 
And so he's a governor of one-fourth of a division or one-fourth of a, of a province, and that happens to include Galilee. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus, Herod is, is ruling over, over Galilee. And it seems that his question about Jesus is kind of spooled up from the activity of the disciples and the apostles that you see um, in those first, in, in verses uh, 6 to 9. So it says he heard about all that was happening, and then he asked... Who is this about whom I hear such things? I want you to see that, that connection in those two, those two paragraphs. And the problem is that Herod is getting mixed reports about Jesus, different reports. Um, everyone has a, a theory about his identity. Um, the theories have basically three things in common. First, they're all religious. And so these theories all kind of center around Jesus being some kind of prophet. He's some kind of prophet, some kind of religious leader, messenger from God. Also, the theories all have a supernatural element to them. And so he's not just a modern teacher or prophet. He's an old prophet who's, been come, who's come back from the dead. And, and, and one of these, so he's Elijah or someone else. And then one of these theories is that he's John the Baptist, actually. John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. And we know from, from Matthew's account that that's actually what Herod thought, that this was John the Baptist, who we, we learn here from Luke, who's been beheaded, who's come back. And there's a third thing that these theories about Jesus have in common. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. The crowds, the religious establishment, even the ruler of all the land, they have a misguided and incorrect understanding of who Jesus is. And so we know... In our own context, this is not foreign to us. For there to be theories and, and ideas about who Jesus is in our, in our land, in our, in our culture, that are religious and even supernatural and, and political at times. Roughly a quarter of our population, the, the population of our planet, two billion people identify as Muslim. And those people would characterize Jesus as a holy prophet of God but no more. Our current president. So here's a political idea of, of Jesus. All for Jesus. Big on Jesus. Pro-Jesus. But was himself denied communion by a Catholic priest for his own commitment to abortion. As like a kind of modern day Herod the Great. In the first sentence of an article I read this week from the Human Rights Foundation, it was titled, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? The author writes this, At the heart of the claim that the Bible is clear that homosexuality is forbidden by God is poor biblical scholarship and a cultural bias read into the Bible. God has already clearly embraced LGBTQ people into full communion, and it is now the church's responsibility to simply honor that reality and rejoice. I was having a conversation with one of our, our children about a conversation they had with a friend who identified as a Christian. And that brought up conversations about multiple things. And they realized after that conversation was over, there were two completely different ideas of what a Christian was. Perhaps you've had that same experience. Uncertainty about Jesus is natural when you view him from a distance or through the lens of popular opinion. But Luke has written his gospel to give us a different source for answering Herod's question. 
And we've already seen this, who is this question, raised in Luke. We saw it, we, we, we saw it in chapter 7 twice, and also in chapter 8. And Jesus' identity is confessed in chapters 4, which is done, he confesses twice who Jesus is. Chapter 7, chapter 8, and here in chapter 9, it will again be confessed twice. This chapter turns on Peter's clear confession of Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 9, verse 20. And then the Father, God himself, from heaven, will declare who Jesus is in verse 35 at the transfiguration. But here, Herod's question about Jesus' identity is left unresolved. And there's a kind of tension that hangs in the air. And I think Luke means for us all to feel that tension ourselves. Will we let the question of Jesus' identity and its implications for our life linger? Or will we settle it once and for all in our own hearts and minds? So far in Luke's account, it's been Jesus himself who's been answering questions about his identity through miraculous deeds, healings, and miracles, and his own teaching. But now, He begins not only to teach his disciples, but to authorize and empower them to be his witnesses, his messengers. And so they will do and teach what Jesus has been doing and teaching. They will proclaim the kingdom of God and do the works of the king. So no longer is spreading the the good news a one-man show in Luke's gospel. It is a group enterprise. And witnessing to Jesus and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, beloved, is still very much a group enterprise. Jesus is not today walking around teaching and healing and gathering disciples, as far as I know. He has authorized and empowered the church, his people, to do this. We have his word We have his Holy Spirit. We are given the task of answering the question, who is Jesus? As we point people to his word. There's a lot we could say about this passage, but I want to draw out some universal principles that especially relate to our own discipleship, our own following Jesus that we see here. I don't want to make a direct kind of one-to-one application because I think this mission here given to the twelve is a unique and specific one. Jesus is teaching them at this time to kind of get out of the nest and, and trust him on their own. We know from other gospel authors they go two by two. He, he sends them out to minister in his name. Later in Luke's gospel, you could flip over to Luke 22 if you want. I'll just read it to you. Luke 22, verse 35. Jesus has them together again and he says this. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So there's, a diff- there's different instructions Jesus gives the disciples and the apostles at that time. So this mission for the twelve is unique and particular. Um, because I, I know this because when Bobby and Andrew and I are going to get on a plane this Thursday for Romania, I don't think we're sinning by bringing bags with us. By making plans to stay at one or more location on our trip. 
This is a particular, these are particular instructions given for these apostles for a particular time. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive for, for us all today. But the lesson that Jesus is teaching them, the lesson he's teaching is universal, that they come away with. Jesus is teaching them to trust him. Did you lack anything? Did you see when I sent you out without any provisions that the Father provided for you? Now take that principle with you into the next stage of your relationship with me. That's what I want to do with this sermon is pull out those, those principles. I think there's, there's several here that we could say, but I want to mention three principles of discipleship that we see from this passage. And I just pray the Lord would encourage us as we seek to witness to the gospel of the kingdom today. Number one, discipleship begins and ends with Jesus. Discipleship begins and ends with Jesus. Notice the order of operations in verse 1. First, Jesus summoned the disciples to himself. Then he authorized and empowered them and sent them out. Called them to himself, empowered them, sent them out. So apparently the disciples were not with Jesus every waking hour of every single day. There were times when they were obviously gathered with him and and, and traveling with him, but there are also times when they were scattered and on their own, and they were tending to, to their own personal affairs. They were home checking on their, their personal affairs. They were getting rest. We know Jesus takes time for himself, by himself, um, away from the disciples, but, but here on this occasion of their, this, this first mission, Jesus gathers them together to commission them for this task, and I imagine this meeting starting out pretty normally, and then it kind of takes a bit of a, a bit of a turn. You can imagine yourself sitting in on this discussion. You want us to now cast out demons? You want us to go and and heal people, Jesus? We've never done anything like that. You want us to go and teach and preach? My greatest fear is public speaking. I don't want to have any part of that. What are we going to say? As we're reading along, as we're reading Luke's gospel, really there's nothing so far that would make us think the disciples are prepared or qualified for a mission like this. They're still very much figuring things out for themselves. They're ordinary, common, very young, and inexperienced men. But discipleship isn't about us. It begins and ends with Jesus. Later, Luke is going to record in the book of Acts a time when the the, the church is just getting started and and some of the disciples are preaching boldly and they're doing many of the works that we see happening here in our passage. And we read this in in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What an encouraging reminder. I just want to encourage you. If, you're, if your thinking goes something like this, I, I just am not ready. I just don't feel like I'm able to serve Jesus and, and fully go in with Jesus or step into a new opportunity of ministry because I'm not able. I don't have the ability myself. I need to improve myself before he can use me. Just know he only and always uses ordinary, inadequate, common people. You are listening to one who is below that line right now. That's all God uses. That's all Jesus has to work with. And we see that clearly here. They are ordinary. They're not in the gifted and talented class at school. 
It's being with Jesus that makes the difference. So much, friends, of our discipleship is learning this. Learning to copy, live like Jesus. Looking at Jesus, doing what Jesus did. Look again at verse 2. Jesus sends out the twelve to do just what he's already been doing. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people. Casting out demons. They've seen him do this. And then he calls them to do likewise. And it's so basic. And yet he, it's, it's easy for us to get, miss this in kind of the hustle and bustle and the shuffle of everyday life. Even as a Christian. We've, there's things we know we're supposed to do, but we lose the vision of it's Jesus that we're to follow. Sometimes we feel like we're doing good just to be at church. I'm just doing good to be here and to listen as a family. But remember, your commitment is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. When you're making disciples, that's what you're doing, helping others to follow him. So this is an early preview of Jesus multiplying his ministry that eventually is going to go to the ends of the earth. So friend, let me just ask you, you're a member of our church, you're here as you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, um, do you have somebody in your life right now that's helping you follow Jesus? You could write that person's name down. If they, if they come to your mind, this person is helping me, or this group of people is helping me follow Jesus. And then, who are you helping to follow Jesus? What person or persons are you seeking to actively help know and follow, obey Jesus Christ? You can make those notes on your, on your bulletin. This church is a group of people that have covenanted together to do just that. To worship and follow Jesus and help others do the same. I wonder if it makes you uncomfortable to think about this. To think about relationally following Jesus. Helping others and being helped by others to follow him. Obviously at the center of that is the word of God. You helping someone else understand and follow Jesus, understand his his commandments, to live like he lived, to love like he loved, to learn how to understand and read the Bible. Does that make you uncomfortable? Maybe maybe it makes you uncomfortable even to think about joining a group like that. And and for this group, joining that means, means stepping out in believer's baptism, to stand before others and profess your faith in Jesus Christ before all of us. That you've been rescued from darkness and now are walking in light because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Discipleship, following Jesus, is going to consistently do this in your life. It is going to consistently push you out from where you are comfortable in your own little cocoon of your life. In my own little cocoon of my life. Outside of myself. So if you're you're a Christian here this morning, you know this already really well. Because your natural tendency, like mine, is to stay where you are comfortable. But Jesus pushes you to this place where you feel like you're walking on the edge of a precipice and you don't know what's going to happen. I can remember multiple times early on in my Christian life feeling like this. Like, I know he's called me to do this. I'm I'm stepping out in faith. I don't know what's going to happen. That's what we see happening here. Him pushing them out. But if you think about the basic discipleship language that we find in the Gospels, it's death. Death to ourselves, losing our lives, taking up our cross, opening our mouth to share the good news when we don't know what someone else is going to do. 
And I look around this room and I can see multiple examples of people that have done this and are walking in this. You've, you've, maybe you've quit a job because Jesus is calling you to lead a life down a different path. Or you've risked your job because you've spoke up for Jesus at work or in a place in your family that you know is going to be unpopular. Or your family is not a Christian and you're seeking to obey Jesus Christ in that context. And because of it, you're losing relationships. You've lost friendships. Because of Jesus Christ. Those people are in this room. And those people have also seen Jesus provide for them. Jesus be faithful to them. And continue to provide and show himself to be faithful. He consistently pushes us outside of ourselves to depend on him. He summons here. He sends. And then we'll notice even the message itself that he's given to the twelve is about him. So he's at the beginning and he's in the middle Here in the content of the message, verse 1, notice it's the kingdom of God that they're to go out and proclaim. And then notice how it's described in verse 6. It says they went out preaching the gospel. So those things are are put in parallel there. Like an inclusio that shows us the, the, the brackets of the text. They're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That the king has come. The king of the universe that rules the universe has come. But he hasn't come to destroy everyone. He's come to offer forgiveness. He's come to offer grace by trusting in him through his sacrificial life and death in our place. You know, the healing ministry of Jesus points to and illustrates this. It points to and illustrates the gospel because sickness and disease are effects of the fall. That's why we get sick. That's why we die. It's because of sin. And so when Jesus starts to reverse those effects, it points to the reality that he's come to change everything. He's come to turn the works of the the devil upside down and redeem the world and redeem God's people from all the effects of sin, which which ultimately are an eternity apart from God, enduring his wrath. So the healing illustrates the kingdom of God is here and the king is on the move. That's something we should remember as we think about later applying this to our own lives. The disciples' work of preaching and healing goes forward, and then notice what happens. It causes questions not about them, but about Jesus. So it begins with Jesus, his his message in the middle, and then it ends with Jesus, because the fruit of it is looking to Jesus, asking questions. Herod's like, who is this? That's how you know that they've done their job well. From Herod's perspective, now Jesus was in one place, but now he's everywhere. People all over Galilee are talking about this ministry. But the apostles are not advancing themselves. They're advancing the cause of Jesus. They're doing mighty, miraculous works with the very authority of Jesus Christ. And the glory goes not to them, but to Jesus Christ. It's a perfect example for all of Christian ministry. Friend, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you're wondering about what it means to be a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. And I'll be honest with you, today, I want you to walk away impacted. I want you to walk away changed. Really, I really want you to be impressed. I want you to be impressed when you walk away today. But not with us. Not with the preaching, not with the music, not with the children's ministry, not even with the hospitality and kindness that hopefully you'll experience from talking to other members at our church. I want you to be impressed. We want you to be impressed with Jesus. We want you to walk away thinking about 
Jesus. Maybe asking difficult questions about Jesus. Hard questions. Struggling with the implications of Jesus being Lord of the universe. And then if, that, if he's Lord of my life, what does that mean for me? Friends, no matter what else stems from our discipleship, good doctrine, meaningful membership, good financial stewardship, godly character, we think all those things, we pray all those things would be present. It's all from Jesus and for Jesus. That's our goal. Exalt Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus himself that told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So may we never hear those words. From beginning to end, our discipleship is all about Jesus. That's observation number one. Observation number two. Discipleship is enabled by the power of God. Discipleship is enabled by the power of God. And this, this couldn't be more clear here in this passage. Verse 1, Jesus gives the twelve power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. The list goes on in some of the other Gospels. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. The ability to do something, that's power. The right to do it, that's authority. So before my children are able to drive legally, they probably could drive in Houston. Pray, right? But they probably could. They could get in the car and drive it. But they don't have the authority to do that from the state of Texas. On the other hand, if I'm a police officer and I'm trying to control a mob, I have authority to, to, to arrest every person in that mob and to take them to jail, but I don't have the power by myself. I have to call backup. So, so you see the difference, power and authority. Jesus gives power and authority, power and authority to the apostles for this trip. Again, unique event. The 12 are, are, are given this, 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 this ability that is from Jesus. Um. Later in chapter 9, they're going to struggle with, with calling out. So they're going to come back. They're going to report what happened. Later in chapter 9, they're going to struggle with casting out a demon. We'll talk about that when we get there. But we are looking at a time before the cross, before the resurrection, before the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers in Jesus. But Jesus gives this special authority and power to enable the twelve for the ministry that he sent them to fulfill. That word send is, the, the word, is a form of the word apostle. So an apostle, capital A, is this one who is sent to serve as an official representative of Jesus and carries with them the power and authority of Jesus. And, and so they go and proclaiming that the, the proclaim the kingdom has come. They confirm that message through these miraculous works of healing and exorcism. And friends, we're still confirming their identity, their unique identity today, as we're just opening and reading our Bibles. We're reading our New Testaments written by these men or by those eyewitnesses who are with these men. They carry the, the, the word of God and the power of God still that carries forward even through the written word of God. So I want to distinguish between that unique authority given to the twelve and what we enjoy as Christians. But that does not in any way, any way, diminish the power and authority that Christians have in Jesus Christ, that we have in Christ. Jesus has authorized us to go and preach the gospel, to go and make, so he's given us that authority, to go and make disciples, to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has authorized the church to assess and confirm those professions of faith and remove 
false professors that would confuse the gospel. We talk about this in our, in our membership class and go through those, those passages in, in, in Matthew 16 and 18. That, that the church is given authority to speak for heaven on earth. But he hasn't just given us authority, he's given us power. We are stewards, first of all, of the gospel. The gospel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't get more powerful than the gospel. It doesn't get more powerful than seeing a dead spiritual corpse come to life and love God and love Jesus Christ and give away his life to follow him. It doesn't get more powerful and amazing than seeing someone's life transformed by their faith in the finished work of Christ alone and his resurrection on their behalf. And we preach the gospel, not in our own power, our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. As you read the Old Testament, you'll see the Holy Spirit active and working. It it rushes upon uh, people who are used of God. It empowers people. It enables in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we see it indwelling. We see it coming to live inside of believers. He comes to live inside of us. And it's the Spirit that has the power to save, the power to save sinners, to sanctify us, to grant faith, to open eyes, to turn hearts to God, to enable our service to God. Paul says in Ephesians that we are strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, Ephesians three sixteen. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, if the Spirit, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Christian dwells in you. So you shouldn't feel let down. You shouldn't feel like, oh, wow, I wish there was, there was some, some, some power that we could speak of for us today. But that spirit, that power, is not for your benefit and my benefit only. Certainly it's used to heal. And I think it's used to heal today. And you may, that may make you uncomfortable, but, but trust me, when you hear the, the cancer diagnosis or you, you hear some of one of your friends or relatives that, that is sick and dying, your first instinct, your right instinct is to pray for God to heal because you believe he can. And you believe he will. So certainly he, he still does, even today. Even casting out demons today. Overpowering the demonic in our own day. So friend, I want to just encourage you, be aware that you swim in the waters of a very anti-supernatural age. And it's very easy to think, yeah, 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 I know that's true. Let's look at the, the words in black and white. But let's remember what those words in black and white point to. Often when the gospel penetrates a new people or culture, it's, it's accompanied by miraculous confirmations from the word. But then, whenever a church is established, the church itself becomes that confirmation, doesn't it? It becomes the witness 
of who Jesus Christ is. The love of God's people. The power of the Spirit at work among the people. Witnessing to the power and work of Jesus Christ. A good rule of thumb when you're thinking about the Holy Spirit and the power is that the Holy Spirit empowers for witness. The Holy Spirit empowers for witness. And so if you see, um, you know, pictures of the Holy Spirit's power for selfish reasons, for, for money-making reasons, for, for attention-grabbing reasons, that, that a, a person might be built up in their own reputation, you can simply know that's not God. That is not the way that the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit empowers to witness, to exalt Christ. Luke is going to just record that really clearly for us, isn't he, in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit that you might be my witnesses. And you see that happen in Acts chapter 2. An amazing Holy Spirit coming down on the church that they might witness for Jesus. Another way you see, I think, the power of God emphasized in this story is the way Jesus instructs them to travel so light. He builds in this dependence on God, doesn't he? So take nothing for your journey. Take nothing with you. Verse 3, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff. Perhaps he means an extra staff. There's another example of extra sandals, um, an extra tunic. No staff, no bag, nor, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there you will depart. So, so not only is he calling the disciples to do things they've never done, he's saying bring nothing with you that's going to help you in your own kind of strength that normal people would always bring. Normal people are going to want food or money for food, right? That's not sinful to think I should probably need that. Um, no walking staff, no bag. Sometimes traveling religious types in these villages would have a bag that would be used to take up offerings, to raise support. He's like, I don't want even that impression to be made. They're, you're going to be totally, utterly dependent. And they're dependent on the hospitality for those in the village, for somewhere to stay. If someone doesn't invite them in, they don't have anywhere to stay. They can't, and then once they go in, notice, they can't then look around and shop for an upgrade. Oh, there's a better B&B down the road. No, you, 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 you go to this one place and you leave that village from that one place. There's also implied, I think, a shorter stay since Jews were sensitive to kind of over, overstaying their welcome. Also a sense of urgency. They didn't come for a long extended stay. They're there to travel light, do the ministry they're called to do, and then move on to the next village. That's exactly what they do. Uh, verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So it's a good reminder for us that God empowers our discipleship. We serve with the, the strength that God supplies. He wants us to be dependent upon him. That's 1 Peter 4.11. And then they gather to tell these stories. Look at verse 10. You know, that they're coming together and they're going to tell these, the, what God did. Give the testimony of what God did. And certainly there, and we know later in Luke, Jesus reminds them all their needs were taken care of. God met all of your needs. So learn from that the next time you're in this opportunity. So I don't think Jesus is calling us to walk around and, and, and just hope someone feeds us and clothes us. 
But he is calling us to this attitude and posture of neediness and dependence on God. That we can do nothing apart from God. We need God for everything. He is the great provider. He provides us with the purpose for our very lives and the power to live out those lives. He redefines our entire life and enables us to walk with him every step of the way. How can we believe that and not have prayer as a, as a centerpiece of our life? How can we, how can we not pray knowing how, how deep our need is for God? I love the way that Jesus instructs the disciples at the end of Luke. Uh, he's resurrected from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Luke 24, 49, I think a nice contrast from what we're seeing here. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power from on high. Instead of this, you needing material clothes, and you need your tunics and, and your staff and your sword and all those other things, the leaf that covers up your nakedness, I'm going to clothe you with the Spirit. I'm going to give you authority and power. My authority and power. And he's going to enable you to follow me, to obey me, to carry out the work of the gospel. He's going to provide for you. Trust him. Trust him. Your discipleship, my discipleship is enabled by the power of God. Let's look at one last observation about our discipleship this morning. Number three, discipleship eliminates neutrality. Discipleship eliminates neutrality. We don't get the impression that the disciples are just going out on a scenic tour here. They're, they're not hanging out and just seeing the sights. They're actually preaching the gospel. And the gospel confronts. The gospel itself offends because it confronts us with our own sin. And Jesus prepares them, even for those that are going to reject the gospel. But even in the rejection of the message, the disciples are witnesses in warning them of the king's Authority. Look at verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We always hope that our message would be received and that people would be saved. But it may also, Christian, be uh, your role as a witness to warn someone about what happens when they reject the gospel. That's what this gesture of shaking off the dust of your feet uh, from your sandals represents. There's a rabbinic idea in Jesus' day that, that when, when rabbis or Jews would, would walk through Gentile lands, their sandals would be contaminated with the dust, the sand from the Gentiles. And so when they would, they would come off of those journeys, they would remove that, that sand as a, as a sign of defilement, shake it off and get rid of it. But what happens when you're in a Jewish area and you shake off the dust from your sandals in front of the village? That means because you have rejected the message of Jesus Christ, Jewish village, you now are the same as a Gentile village. You now, because you've rejected Jesus Christ, have no place in the people of God. Jesus has empowered and authorized his messengers to do that. To warn them of their rejection. There's a weightiness there. And that in and of itself is a witness. And so let me just love you if you're someone who is, who is 
putting off your commitment to Jesus, someone who is not committed to Jesus. Let me just let me just put this before you and call you not to reject him. Do not reject Jesus Christ. Do not do not blame your rejection on Jesus Christ on the messenger. I didn't like the way the pastor was dressed. I didn't like the way he talked. He was looking at his notes a lot. And I didn't like the way the church was. Notice, rejecting the messengers is a rejection of Jesus Christ in this village. Don't reject the gospel. It's a warning. And not to decide, not to commit, not to respond, to remain neutral is to reject the gospel. To put off obedience is to be disobedient. There will come a day when there is no more time to put off your commitment to Jesus. Today so far is not that day. Today so far, there's still opportunity for you to look to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and believe in him. Don't harden your heart. Come to Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are very much like the apostles here when we share the gospel. When we go out from Jesus, authorized to proclaim the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are his messengers, and we're called to give the message of repentance and faith, to give the gospel, to pray, even to persuade and to warn. But at the end of the day, we cannot ultimately save. That's up to, up to Jesus Christ. It's up to the Holy Spirit at work in a, in a sinner's heart. Herod is a good picture of the kind of neutrality that sends people to hell. He limits his knowledge of Jesus to what he's heard others say. He, he's, he's clearly haunted by a guilty conscience, isn't he? He killed an innocent man. It's like Luke just kind of mentions it incidentally. Herod is having this kind of conversation with himself in these verses 7 to 9. And he just mentions offhandedly that he beheaded John the Baptist. Well, if you've just been reading Luke's gospel, you didn't know that. This is the first time you learned that. You knew he was in jail for being prophetic, you know, speaking truth to Herod about his, his uh, sinful relationship, his adulterous relationship, boldly calling him out. Well, ultimately that led to his death. Ultimately it led to Herod cutting off his head. And now Herod is haunted. He has no peace. His sin will not let his, his head rest on the pillow we have no peace, ultimately, apart from Jesus Christ. And this same little lineup of Elijah, you know, or an old prophet raised from the dead, or John the Baptist come back to life, that's going to precede Peter's uh, profession of faith in chapter 9, verse 20, as well. But here, Herod is perplexed. He, he's unsettled. But he seems to just leave the question unanswered. Who is this? And Luke says he sought to see him. But, but Herod is a king. If he really sought to see Jesus, there's really nothing that's going to prevent him from doing that. Here's what we know about Herod. Luke 13, 31, we read this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So that was part of his seeking of Jesus, to, to kill him. And when he finally does meet Jesus in chapter 23, it's clear all he wants to do is see a miracle. Show me one of those cool signs that you do, Jesus. And then he laughed at him when he wouldn't do it, dressed him up and sent him away. So, so his neutrality is no neutrality at all. He is very much against Jesus Christ. 
And you are the same way, friend. If you're, if you're neutral to Jesus, you are, in fact, against him, just like Herod. I hope that's a helpful visualization for you. If you haven't made a settled, firm, life-altering commitment to Jesus Christ, there is no neutrality. Either you're submitted to Jesus or you've rejected Jesus and you've rejected the good news. So I want to encourage you to seek Jesus, not like Herod, but seek him in his word. Take, take a copy of the, the Bibles that are listed here, that are, that are here on the shelves, and go through Luke's gospel and just read it. Read it over and over and over again. Write down questions that you have. And then talk to someone who's here with you today. Talk to someone about what it means to know Jesus. And I know that they would love to sit with you and talk to you more about that. Because uncertainty about Jesus is, is natural when you view him from a distance or through the lens of popular opinion. So don't do that. Seek him in the scriptures through his people. If you find yourself to be purposeless or wandering through life, he will direct you. You'll find the pursuit that you are actually made for, knowing God. And when you come to the right conclusions about Jesus Christ, you're going to immediately want others to know Jesus Christ. And you're going to be someone who wants to go everywhere in the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ to preach the good news. To see lives saved and healed with the love of Christ. And so pray that that would be true here at UPBC. That our discipleship would begin and end with Jesus. That we would display and depend on the power of God that enables all of it. It enables our discipleship. And that we would be faithful witnesses. Even in the midst of rejection to the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. We're thankful that we know how the story ends and we see the progression, uh, even in the book of Acts, of your church victorious and unstoppable, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remind us, Lord, that we are that same church. Remind us that we're enabled and empowered by your Spirit. Remind us that Jesus is at the center of all that we do and that we will have opposition, but may we be faithful. We pray even now as we come to the Lord's table that you would be near to us. Remind us. Preach the gospel to us through the supper. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.